Hi, it's Lynn Galadner, and welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm a writer and entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've learned that we succeed through inspiration from storytelling and deep and mutually beneficial relationships. This show began in 2018 after my father was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and I wanted a way to capture his stories and record his insights. It's grown since then to share stories of how people around the world make meaning from very ordinary pursuits. Now I focus on sharing the stories of writers, authors, and those in the world of publishing to learn how and why we create stories that help us make meaning from the mundane. I'm a former journalist and marketing entrepreneur, and I've been teaching writing for more than two decades. As a writing coach, I help authors build their brands and share their words. If you'd like to write with me, check out my offerings at lynngaladner.com. And you'll find more episodes of this podcast at makemeaning.org, as well as on every podcast platform you can think of. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to the Make Meaning Podcast. Now, on to the show. Hey, everybody. This is a super special episode of the Make Meaning podcast because my debut novel, Woman of Valor, is making its debut in just a few weeks. And so today I am on the other side of the microphone as the guest being interviewed on this podcast. And the host is my longtime friend, soul sister, amazing writer, incredible advocate for just about everyone, Katie Scott. Katie is a phenomenal person. She's a Washtenaw County, Michigan politician, and she's a nurse, and she's this writer that like, I wish I could be. So anyway, I've invited Katie to interview me about Woman of Valor, and I hope you enjoy the show. So hey, Katie. Hi, Lynn. It's so fun to be on the podcast with you. I'm very excited. I have been looking at your podcast and listening forever. And so I'm so excited that I get to be here today to talk to you. This is really fun. So I just want to tell my listeners, Katie is one of my favorite people of all time. I call her Rabbi Katie. She's been a writer friend, a religious friend, uh, just everything like a sister. And of course, I had to give her Woman of Valor when I wanted an honest opinion before I said it was ready to publish. And so who better to interview me on my podcast about my novel that's coming out September 26th. Lynn, I was really excited to get the copy of Woman of Valor and read it. And of course, I reread preparation for doing this interview with you today. And I'm just so excited after all of these years. This is the point that we're at where I am talking to you about this amazing novel that you've written. (laughs) I know. It's amazing. It's really fun that we've gotten here. I mean, we met, actually, my daughter asked recently, how did you ever meet Katie? And I'm like, in a writing course at the YMCA in Birmingham, Michigan, the 1990s. Yeah. It was like 1995 or 1996. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. And I was so excited to be in that class for the person who was teaching it. I was a great admirer of his poetry In actuality, the best thing to come out of that class was my friendship with you. hundred percent. hundred percent. We met other writers there too, but like, you're like part of my family. You are my family. And so it's just so cool. And we're both writers, even though we've done other careers too. Um, I, and I just remember the times we would go to the coffee shop in Plymouth and write together. It was like our halfway point. And I think I remember bringing Eliana in like a baby car seat, maybe. I think you probably bring Eliana in a baby car seat. Yeah. I also know that um, I was there when Eliana was born. Yeah, Like not there. Yeah, like minutes but, later. But minutes later. Yeah. Because it happened to be Shabbos. Yeah. And so there weren't a lot of people around and you were in the now closed 
alternative birthing center yeah. at Providence. And you had this big giant queen bed or double bed. <laughs> yeah. And I can remember coming and laying in the bed with you yeah. and Eliana being between the two of us. Yeah, so. because my ex walked to synagogue to name her. And so they brought like two meals for like me and my husband and you got the other. And I got the other meal. <laughs> there was haggen ice cream. I remember yes. that. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> I didn't remember that until just now. Well, and when now you keep I do, kosher, so, yes. you really appreciate the little things that are yeah. tasty. So, you know, that is so fun. That is really fun. So, That's good. Yeah. Well, Lynn, also, I want to say, I feel like you're also an inspiration to me because Aww. we did start as writers together and I mean, and, you know, we know we've talked about this, about my true calling is to be a writer. So I'm really trying to carve out time in my schedule to write every day. So hopefully we'll be doing a podcast like this at some point and we can be talking about my book. Absolutely. Maybe published by Scotia Road. Yes. Say the word. <laughs> your book. I mean, I don't even have to see it to know that, that we would accept it, you know, but yes, a hundred percent. I can't wait for that day. That'll be really fun. It's great. Yeah. Okay, Lynn, I have a whole page of questions Yay. that I wanted to ask you about. And so let's just get started. So yeah. I was thinking about this novel and wondering why did you feel it was important to write this novel from an Orthodox slash modern Orthodox woman's viewpoint, like all the stories and all the world. Yeah. And you're not Orthodox yourself now. Right. So why write it from this viewpoint? This is such a great question to start with. So I started writing this novel in 2011. So I was just three years out of being Orthodox and divorced from my first husband. And I wrote like 60 pages. And it was about this very angsty young woman who had become Orthodox and she hated her life. Mm. And I got to like 60 pages and was kind of bored with it. And I put it aside and I came back to it 10 years later in 2021, when I got really serious about pivoting to be a novelist and to focus on my author career more than anything. And I really didn't like it. I was like, there are so many books out there about people who were Orthodox who had miserable experiences and left. So that's been done. Yeah. So what could I offer that was different? And I don't know why I wanted to salvage Sally, the main character, or you know the premise of this story, because I basically rewrote it from scratch. But I, I decided to challenge myself because I was Orthodox and I left Orthodoxy. I still think there are some beautiful things about that way of life and some that I still incorporate into my life today as what I would say, I mean, maybe I'm a secular Jew, I guess, but I, I observe in, in little ways that are meaningful to me. And so I wanted to write a book about a woman who chooses to be Orthodox and meets challenges along the way, but still chooses to stay because she sees the overall goodness of that community. And so sort of sending a message that like, you know, there are always challenges wherever you are, but you make your peace with it and you find your place. And so it, it became a challenge to write that story. But I, I think I pulled it off. I think you pulled it off too. And I'm going off my list of questions, That's which okay. of course you have not seen. Yeah. And I and I'm thinking about you writing this book and what it means in the kind of like canon of Jewish literature. Yeah. And I'm thinking about some like books that we've both loved yeah. from the past that have very strong Jewish characters, very strong Jewish male characters. Yeah. So did you make a conscious effort to create a strong Jewish female character? And where do you think the role for that is in like the kind of canon of Jewish literature? Well, yeah, because in orthodoxy, one of the biggest criticisms, both generally and from myself, is the is the second class situation of women. And there are lots of ways to rationalize it. And I definitely tried to find those when I was there. But the truth of it is that women are not primary in the Orthodox community. And so I do think it's important to see a strong Jewish woman 
who has her own voice and her own mind and still chooses to be orthodox. I think that was important to me. But also when I was determining my author brand, which I help a lot of people figure out, you know, who are you as an author and how do you put yourself out there? It is part of my brand to write strong, compelling Jewish characters, even if they're not religious. Like my next novel that I'm in the middle of right now, they're Jewish and they're definitely identifying, but they're not religious. And so, but that still plays a huge, a huge uh, role in the book. And so I really want to have compelling Jewish characters who are not afraid to be openly Jewish in a world that, let's face it, has become increasingly anti-Semitic. And so um, I, I hope my books can, can land in the canon at some point, you know, I'm not sure if I'm there or not, but, but I would like to be. And I think that, you know, this, I hope that this of interest to a mainstream audience, despite being very, very Jewish. I think that I think that reading it, it will be. Yeah. And I think that there is kind of become a mainstream interest in some of those things, particularly people have curiosity about the Orthodox world. Yeah. And I think this opens it up to them. So for people who aren't familiar with that, reading this book and having the entree to this world be a strong woman yeah. who leads her family in decisions who is flawed and who helps her husband mm -hmm. discover what's important to him. I think that's a great entree for people to have. So I think that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I think for making your point about having strong Jewish characters, I love because you can correct me on this statistic that I just read about Jewish people being 5% of the population, but being 2%. Two, it was maybe five. Was it? of the US or the world, I don't know, 5% okay. is the, the thing I read. And okay. the statistic I won't get right, though, I think was that they are the object of 55% of hate crimes. That number is right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think that creating these books with these strong characters, these real characters, mm -hmm. is very important because I think the best literature can create empathy in other people. Yeah. And I can see how your work is doing that. Oh, thank you. That's awesome. I'm going to skip to another totally <laughs> different question, but still kind of in this genre. There are a lot of descriptions of cooking yes. and food in the book. Um, and as somebody who's eaten at your house, I can recognize this as a little bit of you in this book. What is it about food that's so important in this book, in your life, uh, and in Jewish culture? So that's such a great, great question. I love that. And I, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, first of all, you know, I think one of my rebellions in, in, against my family, whom I love, but you know, if they're listening, but I, I think one of my rebellions was to cook and to bake and to learn how to do things from scratch. So like one of my greatest accomplishments early on when I was married the first time was baking challah mm -hmm. because like to bake bread, oh my God, you don't buy it in a plastic bag from somewhere. Like that just felt very empowering to me. And the more I did it, the more I felt like I can survive on my own because I have these skills. Mm. So that was really big. And then I just absolutely love feeding people and nourishing people and having people around my table. I mean, you know that you're there as much as I can get you there. And, and I just love, I love to see the delight on people's faces when they sample things that I've made and to know that it's all within my ability. It's, you know, I don't have to turn to anybody else for that. So that's big for me. And as far as for Sally in Woman of Valor, it's one way that she bonds with her kids. And that definitely I took from my playbook because that is something I've done with my kids since they were little. From the time that, you know, they were in like a baby backpack, sort of watching me over my shoulder as I'm 
dealing with things on the stove or standing on chairs and like punching the dough, just like they do in the book. But it's really her way of like making a home and having experiences, tactile experiences, building memories with her children um, and also elevating the observance, you know? So, you know, when there are these delicious flavors and everybody's involved in making them and then they all come together and it's just a way to, to notice the details and the moments, which is what observance is all about. So the food is an important thing. And I actually created Sally's Sabbath Recipes Cookbook. Oh, that's so fun. That is sort of a value add for readers of the book. And so that's something that you can download at my website, lynngaladner.com. That's really fun. I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. I also think that when I read it, I felt like there's also the idea of tradition mm-hmm. that I feel like in Jewish culture is so much carried through with food yeah, also. Yeah. And so I think about like being at your house and having gefilte fish that was your grandmother's recipe. Yes, yeah. And your son makes the fluff, the yep, strawberry, strawberry fluff, fluff yep. also your grandmother's recipe. So how these things get carried down and really create a strong sense of tradition that everybody has had these recipes and that they'll continue to be carried down. Yeah. And I mean, Sally, you know, in the book, she leaves her family because they don't have these traditions. They're really, they don't have that, that tactile bond. And so she's starting from scratch. And so this is one way that she creates the sort of the bond in her family, the glue that holds them together and things that, you know, hopefully she's creating a legacy over time. Okay. So Lynn, that makes me think about the, another question I was going to ask you. And it's really right after the cooking question, as if this flow was just going to happen. But (laughs) do you think that you'll write about Sally and Barry again? And it's just such a dynamic relationship that is really changing, especially with all of the different things that happen in the book. And I don't want to give any spoilers (laughs) away. Um, But I think that it would be interesting to see what happens to them, say, 20 years later or 30 years later. So so have you ever thought about continuing their story? Yeah, I mean, I thought about I thought about continuing or developing more of the characters in the book in other books. And so then they would become basically like the the secondary characters or the subplot. And, you know, like I thought about Batya and Svi could be, could have a book of their own. I thought that their backstory was really interesting and that I might want to deepen that. Um, But I really had a vision that one of Batya's kids and one of Sally's kids end up in Israel, but on different sides of the religious focus on Israel. And so one who's like very Zionist and one who's not and sort of what happens there. Um, but I don't know, because I have like a list of all the books I want to write, all the novels, and I've like fleshed out some of the characters and stuff. And the one I'm, the, the next novel that I have, it's called Cave of Secrets. And um, there's totally different characters in totally different places. I'm still Jewish. And that's still a huge thread in that novel. But yeah, I don't know. It's on the list, but I'm not sure. That makes me think about uh, the process, some of that. So you are a prolific writer. Yeah. It's incredible. Okay. And you have a reputation of being an amazing narrative writer, a personal mm. essay writer. You have some very strong work in that genre and you've written other books. Mm-hmm. But what surprised you the most about this process of writing a novel? So I really have fun writing fiction. Um, I did it because I wanted to prove to myself that I could, but I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it because you know, and I've written two other novels that have never seen the light of day and they're not that good, but they were projects where I became consumed by it, where the the characters spoke to me. 
And and I was like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Or, oh, how did that happen? You know, which is really, really fun. And this definitely happened with Woman of Valor. It's, it's happened with Cave of Secrets. But what I did differently after writing Woman of Valor is I really, and as a writing coach, this is important, I got very enamored with the idea of planning out the book. So there's this whole argument about plotters versus pantsers, writing by the seat of your pants or plotting it out. And I was always like, I'm a pantser and that's just how I am. And that's true. But it doesn't really work for me when writing fiction because there are a couple of things that happen. One thing is that you get maybe halfway through and you stall because you just don't know what's going to happen next. Another thing that happens, and this happened with Woman of Valor, is you lose track of like who's where and what is this detail. And it's really hard to go back and find it. And so I ended up with Woman of Valor having a, like a, two documents open on my computer. And one was like a list of the characters and then their connections so that I would use the same names or I would remember them. Like I just really could, I got lost. And so for Cave of Secrets, I planned it out, like it spent a month planning this novel. And I have a synopsis. I have character sketches. I have point by point, like the, the big 15 beats. It's called a beat sheet. It comes from Save the Cat. So I didn't create it, but I There's tweaked so it. so many questions in there. Yes. The beat sheet from Save the Cat. Save the, the okay. Cat is a book and it's like to help writers really structure their writing. And there's a beat sheet for memoir and a beat sheet for novel. And I have taken both and I've tweaked them to make them my own. So I use them with my writing coaching clients to help them plot out their their novels. And it's really actually fun for me to do now because I feel empowered. Like I know what I'm doing going in. And I will even say writing Cave of Secrets, I have it so well planned and it still diverges and the characters still do things that surprise me. But at least I have a structure to know how to get back on the path because it can get very boring in the middle of a book if you don't know what action is supposed to happen or what challenges or crises come before the characters and how you're going to resolve them. You know, like with Woman of Valor, the first draft, I had Barry getting sick with leukemia and I really didn't like that at all. And so I went back and I just tore it out and I redid it. And I'm like, this is just too sad. And I, again, I wanted a happy book that has challenges and, and, you know, moments of tension, but ultimately I wanted characters that like their life and like each other. And so I didn't really want a character to, to have cancer. I just didn't, you know, so, so plotting has become my new best friend for a process. I think that's really interesting because I'm definitely a pantser uh -huh. <laughs> um, and, and I can see where it stalled my own writing, where I have written so far and so much of something. And then I'm sort of like, I don't know how to progress these characters further. So I think that that idea of having a plot, like yeah. I'm listening to you talk and thinking about how I can go home and look at a, a beat sheet. sheet. I'll send it to um, you. A beat sheet and <laughs> plot out my idea of my novel. Yeah. And even how if you have a beat sheet, if your novel's not taking a traditional form, yeah. a, a regular story arc and kind of going back and forth in time, yeah. that beat sheet could still yeah. still help you. It gives you a structure. I will definitely send it to you, but like feel like I know I know where I'm headed. And that's really important. Like I've seen so many writers talk about how they need to know where they're going to end up in order to plot everything leading up to it. And so if you're writing, if you're a pantser and you're writing a novel and you don't know how it ends, how do you know what action needs to happen so you can like seed the ideas all the way through? You know, like I'm even thinking in like the next novel, you know, are there certain little quirks or details of like personality traits, relationship, like, um, I don't know, things that they share together that I can seed in all the way through. So it becomes like one of those signatures. 
And you only know that if you know where you're going. And sometimes even when you plot it, you don't really know that, but it helps. It definitely helps. I also really feel like from the from your answer before too, when you talked about that these are real people who like each other and then it doesn't need to be overly sad. Yeah. I think we have probably both read books where the drama is so enormous, it captures you in the moment of reading it, but then you put down the, the book and you're like, ugh. Yeah. Just because it was so not real. Yeah. And so I think your connection with realness of people's lives, of the fact that these things that happen to so many of us mm -hmm. and how the characters deal with those things is refreshing. Thank you. Yeah, I think that I, I've read so many books where there's angsty characters, they're in unhappy marriages, they're 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 complaining about their lives. And I mean, don't we hear enough of that in real life? Like, I don't need to to see that on the page. Like, I like books that are uplifting and that take me on a journey. And that's what I hope to write. That's great. I have another question going yeah. back to the book. Yeah. I want to ask about, do you, do you think, like, I'm thinking about the tensions that exist in the book. Do you think that there's a tension in this book between those who converted and those who didn't that add to the tension? Or then I think about the relationship with Bacha and Sally, both converts. Well, they're not converts. Oh. They're Balei Tshuva. They oh, became okay. religious, but yes. they were okay. born Jewish. They were born yes. Jewish. Yeah. I, it's funny how I still think of that. I know yeah. they were both born Jewish. Yeah. But I just still think about it converting to <laughs> I get it. Orthodox. They For were sure. always Jewish. Yep. And how Sally's concerns are about Bacha knowing her secret, which I won't. Yeah. Which I won't. Okay. Uh, reveal. <laughs> and how this, there's a lot of questions in here. So about the tensions and the tensions between people who are Balat Shuvat. And how Sally may actually feel isolated sometimes despite being in such a close-knit community. Yeah. yeah. Well, there is this idea. Um, so the term is from, from birth, from yes. F-R-U-M, like <clears throat> I mean, it re refers to religious Jews. I don't know what it what it comes from, but but somebody who's always been religious, it just um, in a way they take it for granted. It's their world. It's in their mind, right? You know, somebody who chooses it obviously decides it's right for them. And there's a lot of catching up to do. And and I know this myself from when I was Orthodox. There were a lot of times that I felt left out because I I either wasn't as fluent in Hebrew or. I wasn't, I didn't know some of the nuances. I mean, my first Passover was like a nightmare because I was just like, what is going on? Like I've done Passover my whole life, but this is nothing like what I did. And so I think um, there's always a sense of catching up and a sense that your footing isn't solid. Um, and so somebody like Batya, who is like all in, hook, line, and sinker, as you know, religious as can be, and and no looking back, you know, and total blinders on. Um, and then Sally, who is totally in, but she likes to keep parts of herself from her former life, which I think is fine, but it makes it more challenging. And so there's like a, there's, there's even a tension in their relationship because Sally doesn't want to reveal that, you know, maybe she is thinking about an ex-boyfriend or maybe she is having doubts in some way. And, and, you know, does that in any way weaken her position in the community? So, yeah. yeah. And then she worries about her friendships. Yeah. Um, too. I mean, I just think the the it's interesting that your next book is the the cave of secrets, mm -hmm. and this book also had so many secrets. Yeah. 
um, in various places in the book that the characters were always, or particularly Sally, yeah. kind of dancing around and then how Barry gets involved in yeah. that as well. Too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we all have secrets. And I think that uh, one of the things I learned from being Orthodox is that everybody acts out in some way. So even if they seem 100% committed to being religious, they're not. There's always something. So like I remember one of the things you don't do on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, is you don't use hot water. And so it's the idea that you, when you turn on the hot water faucet, it ignites the flame in the water heater, et cetera, et cetera. I was going to explain why I felt that to be true as my role of Rabbi Katie. But yes, yes yeah. I knew you knew. I know you knew. You're like the best you know, protector of my religion. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so you don't use hot water. So imagine washing dishes by hand with cold water and like it doesn't really work. And it's also horrible for your hands and whatever. So I, there was a woman who lived down the block from me. She wore skirts all the time. She covered her hair. She wore long sleeves, totally looked the part. And we were talking one time and she's like, oh yeah, I wash my dishes with hot water on Shabbat. And I was like, what? Like, are you kidding me? And she's like, well, uh, first of all, it's terrible. for It's so cold on my hands. They hurt and I don't get them clean. So I have to get them clean. They're going to use hot water. And she was so laissez-faire about it. And I remember telling my husband at the time and he was mortified. Like, how dare she? But like he did his things that weren't quite observant. Like everybody does. And there have been tons of articles about like the more religious you get, the the more you act out. I don't know, like in secret ways, because you can't come clean in your community because people will judge you. And so I think there are always secrets. I just read a book that was about an Orthodox community in London. And one of the characters' families, they had a TV that they kept in the closet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yep. they would bring the TV out to watch football, aka soccer matches. Yeah. yeah. And at some point, when they're thinking about sending one of their kids to one of the yeshivas, one of the questions is, do you have a TV yeah. in your house? And they have this huge thing about whether they can lie on the application because it's one thing to have a TV yes, and quite another to lie about it. <laughs> well, yeah. So I remember at my first wedding, I mean, we all make up these like what's okay and what's not for ourselves. But at my first wedding, I had a friend who was uh, one of the bridesmaids and she and her husband were there and they're Jewish, but not religious. My soon-to-be sister-in-law who I have had three sisters-in-law who are lovely people. And one of them lives in Israel and is very, very ultra-Orthodox, super amazing person and probably still my favorite of my former sisters-in-law. But she lives in such an insular enclave in Israel. And she was here for the wedding. And my friend's husband reached out his hand to shake her hand. And she flipped out and like waved her hands away to like, no, 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 I can't touch your hand. Because like a woman touching a man right. out of marriage is not allowed. Yeah. And I remember my rabbi saying, it is a worse sin to humiliate someone than it is to shake the hand of the opposite sex. And so it's like, where do we make up these these rules? Like, you know, so I I, I mean, listen, the TV in Sally and Barry's home is behind a cupboard. Yeah. And it's only for like videos for the kids that are approved, you know, so or in the basement when she's running on the treadmill, you know, she's watching I Love Lucy because that's approved. So yeah, there are all these hypocrisies and double standards for sure. Well, I think that though, that that's one of the things that's evident in the book though is that how people are making meaning which is a theme for you yes. making meaning yeah and so i think it's evident how people are making meaning about different things yeah. and i think that 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 is clear so sally makes meaning in her life in one way and bacha makes it in another and i think that one of the things that's really interesting is how you're able to write about those things seemingly without judgment 
I mean, like I sometimes like even reading it, I was yeah. like, I wanted a little bit like say something more about that. <laughs> but then I realized that's part of the book, though, too, is that openness to how people are making meaning in their lives and the willingness you give people to to do that themselves. Yeah, I'm so glad that it didn't come across as judgmental. And I was really careful to to not do that because there's a ton of judgment. I mean, we're all human and we have these weaknesses. And so like we do that. But I think that, you know, as much as we're sitting here joking about like the hypocrisies and double standards, you know, I think striving to fulfill this ideal is an amazing goal, you know? And so, so in the book and also frankly, in the real world, the majority of Orthodox Jews that I've known are, are doing their best to live according to these ideals because they believe it'll make them a better person and the community better and, and life more fulfilling. And I think it's something we're striving for. So I'm glad it came across not judgmental. That's awesome. Definitely. So another question about process, just because I want to make sure that we're talking about your process as a writer, because I know another one of the things that you do so well is as a writing coach. Um, and so what did you feel like was the most difficult part of writing this book? And what surprised you the most? Oh, that's a good question. What's the most difficult part of it? I mean, I'm a really impatient person. And so <laughs> as you, you know, so why you're laughing. Um, so like, I wanted it done. And I wanted it done perfectly. And I really wanted, you know, to not have to go back and go back and go back. So that patience was hard. And what surprised me was how much I loved it, like how fun it was. And in a way, that I think was lighter than when I write nonfiction. So my nonfiction is very serious. It can be heavy. It can be like really thoughtful and like deep and whatever. And I hope there's depth in this novel, but I think there was fun and lightness and and it was just it was it was just joyful. I mean, I really I really loved that. So I'm hoping that using the beat sheet going forward and plotting like minimizes my impatience and also maximizes the quality of the first draft so that I don't have to tear things out and start over and whatever. You don't have to have a whole chapter of leukemia exactly. that doesn't happen. Right. Yeah. And then like 60 pages that are trashed, you yeah. know. And actually this this next novel, I mean the first draft, you know, I've written in like four months. And oh. so which is great. But one of the things that I found is that like I know now that first drafts are messy and there will be holes. And so I can go I can then take the time to go back. And once you have a draft, it is so much easier to work with. And so then I'm like, oh, I need to add a scene here. Oh, this detail's missing. Or, oh, I want to thread this through. And it's so much easier to fix. And so I feel like subsequent novels will go better and faster and more easily because of what I learned from Woman of Valor. Yeah, it's hard when you've written something and you can even recognize it as good writing, yeah. but that doesn't fit in your book right? To to, to throw that out. Yeah. I assume you don't throw it out. No. You keep it all in a file somewhere yes. that may be used at some point. I do. And I do that for my essays too. When I like take out paragraphs or sections or whatever. And then I like, I have so many documents saved. And the reality is I never, ever go back to them. <laughs> so I always tell my students like, you know, if it doesn't belong here, but you love it, save it for something else, but just know you're probably never going to use it. So yes, there's beautiful writing floating around my my Dropbox and it's probably never going to see the light of day. Oh, that's so frustrating. <laughs> oh. Um when you're writing the book or when you're done writing the book, where do you turn to for thoughtful and honest advice about the writing? Because it can be so hard yes. because writing is so personal. And this topic in terms of woman of valor even seemed so personal when I was reading it. And so where do you go for that? And how do you deal 
with feedback you don't like. So with Women of Valor, I did not workshop it in process. I Once it was done and then I did an edit and a revision myself and I felt it was as strong as I could make it, I hired a developmental editor. And it's her job to go through and give macro feedback as well as micro. So she didn't go in and do track changes or anything in the document, but she started with big picture, like here's the main theme and here's where there's a hole and you know whatever. And then she went through and did the, the little things. And so after that, I spent about six weeks reworking and I sent her the first hundred pages after I did that to see what she thought, because that was the weakest part because I was taking those first 60 pages that were mediocre or at best um, and starting from there. And so that was just the clunkiest. And so I really got in my groove after probably, I don't know, 75 pages or so. Um, so I so I did all that with her and then I reworked it a little more based on the feedback of those hundred pages. So this is paying her to do it, which I felt was a really good investment. And then when I felt that it was really good, I sent it to you and to my husband and you both gave really good, solid feedback, not just, oh, I love it. It's great. But like, you know, really thoughtful stuff. And I know you had feedback that I could have kept going and gone back and revised it even more. And I decided that it was fine as it was. It could be better with some of the things you said, but it wasn't necessary for this story. But some of the things you said, I did definitely change. And so I read both drafts. So, I saw yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so so I was really, really selective. The other thing is, you know, I have quite a few critique partners now. So I have a, a week, a monthly writing group in Michigan and we meet every month and people are working on novels and sending chapters at different, you know, meetings. And then I have a critique, two individual critique partners that we meet once a month. And one of them is doing a novel and she sends me like chapters at a time. And so I've debated whether I'm going to workshop Cave of Secrets with them or not, because first of all, I'm impatient. So doing a chapter by chapter when it's like, you know, 50 chapters or whatever it is, it's going to take a really long time. But I also, I know that I cannot workshop it while I'm still writing the draft. And because I feel like then it will distract me from finishing the draft yeah. and it'll go back and fix earlier things and it's not cohesive. Yeah. So I find that when I'm writing a novel, I need to get out the solid manuscript first before I can ever ask for feedback. And then I'm just really selective about who I ask because I want I want real feedback. How important do you feel like it is for writers to have a community that they write in and trust? 100%. Do you think you can be a writer, solitary, just writing and not having that community? No, I don't. Yeah. I think, um, first of all, it's a pretty lonely and isolated endeavor. And you sort of get in your own head and you don't know what's good and what isn't. And and frankly, you could feel really lonely. And so I think that for those reasons, you need a community. But I think you have to have critique partners who are going to be honest. You, you don't want people who are like, it's great. I love it. Like you want that, but you really need to know what the problems are. And, you know, I'll give an example. There's a writer that I met who has a book out and it's decent. I mean, I read the book, but as I read the book, I'm like, oh my God, you need a developmental editor. Oh my God, there's like this problem or that problem. And it turns out that this writer had critique partners. I don't think there was a developmental editor. And so I feel a little bad saying that. That's why I'm not naming who it is. But I think that we, if we only have people who support us and are our cheerleaders, we really can't know honestly how the work stands up in the world. And, and if you want to share your work in the world, you don't have to. You can just write for your own pleasure or for your family or something. But if you want, as I do, to publish books and have people buy them and buy the next one and the next one, you got to make sure it's pretty damn good. Yeah, that's great. I have questions that just kind of thinking about you talking about this. What has been your journey in publishing and that has led you to Scotia Books? Yeah, so I love this question. I'm so glad you asked it because, you know, I've had eight books published before this. 
two collections of poetry, six nonfiction books, well, two were ghostwritten. And so I've had a lot of experiences and they've all been with small presses or you know, specific publishers. Um, and they were all labors of love, like, oh, on the side of what my real job is, I'm writing a book, you know. So I never really sought to make money at it. I just liked the um, validation of somebody choosing me to publish me. And so I was really unsure when I started writing Woman of Valor, was I going to try to go the traditional route and pitch agents and publishing houses and see, you know, if that would work or do it myself or, you know, do a hybrid. There's so many ways now to publish that are valid and which is hard to accept because when we were growing up, it was not okay to self-publish, you know? So they called I, it a vanity press. Exactly. Right. Like you couldn't get it anywhere else. So right. you, it was like a failure, you know? Yeah. So I did query agents and I actually had great responses. A ton of them were like, I want the full manuscript. And I sent it. And all the ones who got the full manuscript loved it. They're like, you're a great storyteller. You're a great writer. I'm so compelled by Sally and Barry. But, and there was always a but. And what I realized was that it was about money. It was like they couldn't see making money from it. And because maybe the publishers weren't looking for something like this, or maybe it was too Jewish, or one of them called it literary fiction, which to me was the hugest compliment. Yeah. And was like, literary, <laughs> Thank you. yeah, I know. She's like, but literary fiction is really hard to break into today. And I'm like, okay, it's literary fiction. Yay. Yay. You know, like, so I didn't look at it as a rejection. I actually looked at all their feedback as really great. And I think also, I really believe in manifesting. And I think part of me was like, I want to do this my way anyway. So I think I put that out there, that energy, and I didn't give it much time. A lot of people, when they really want an agent, they go six months, a year, 18 months, whatever. And then I know people who've gotten agents and then they couldn't sell the book. And so it's like, what is the deal? And I just, I feel like life is short. I want to write a book a year and publish it for the rest of my life. And I can't wait for somebody else to give me validation or open the gate and say, here you go. And to to make less money. And so that's the thing is that, you know, what I've learned from publishing today is that if you make it through the gatekeepers of the agents and if you make it through the gatekeepers of the publishers and your book comes out, there's no guarantee they're going to give you a second contract. There's no guarantee you're going to make any money. You make such a small fraction. And so I decided to start Scotia Road Books to have a publishing imprint on my book, but also to give another platform for other strong women of a certain age whose work should get out there. So Scotia Road Books is the hybrid press for women over 40 with strong voices that need to be heard. Wow. Yeah. So it's very niche and it's hybrid, which means the writer pays the costs up front, but then they get 60% of the profits. And in traditional publishing, you might get 10%, which means you might get a dollar a book, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe. And if they promote it, and and I know so many authors who are doing their own marketing because the publishing houses just don't do it anymore. Like they give you a publicist for three days, which wow. as a former PR person, I can tell you three days is nothing. Yeah. So all that to say, I feel really good about doing it my way. And I understand that some people might look askance and be like, oh, not good enough to make it, you know, but I don't really care. I feel like if I sell a few thousand copies, I'll be really happy. And if it goes more than that, I'll be over the moon. And my goal is just to sell books, uh, to write books, to sell books and to build an audience of readers that I can have relationships with. And so I don't know. I think it feels good. There's so much about that answer that I love. One, I love that you took the feedback that you got 
from agents that you were sending that to and didn't focus on the butt. Yeah. I think you have inherently as part of who you are, a kind of growth mindset Mm. so that you don't take a no or a but without turning it around to see how you can make that positive. I think that's been true probably your entire life. And I've known you for at least half of it now. And so I've seen that as a constant for you. And also love that when you came up with the idea for Scotia Road Books, you already have thought about where the market is for the who who's using Scotia Road Books. Yeah. Who is Scotia Road Books for? And that you have a sort of roadmap already uh-huh. for who Scotia Road Books is for yeah. and that you have that stated. I mean, I think that that you're right. It is so niche, but there are probably so many of us that fit into there. I love that you're using this also to think about how to empower other women. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just have one final question. Yeah. Um, I probably have actually 10,000 more, but <laughs> people don't want to listen to us talk all day, maybe. <laughs> My one final question is like, what do you think is next? I know we have Scotia Road books and you have a book a year, but I bet there's something in Lynn Galadner's head <laughs> that I haven't heard about yet about what's next for you. So, you know, when I pivoted from marketing full-time to writing, I started teaching more classes, coaching writers, leading writers retreats, you know, whatever. And of course, writing my own books. I I would like to, in five years time, not really do the marketing anymore. I would like to really focus on the retreats as the big teaching opportunities with fewer classes. So in 2024, there's going to be writers retreats in Savannah, Georgia, and the Redwoods of Northern California, as well as my annual Mackinac Island writers retreat. So I'd like to be doing writers retreats, you know, like two, three a year that are in really cool places to give people experiences and bring them together because being in the same room is just amazing. It's just, it's so energizing. And And you know that after I turned 50, I really was like, each year I'm spending a month somewhere in the world as not just a tourist, but like being there. And so last year was Scotland, this year is Nova Scotia, and I have a short list of places and years to come. And everywhere I go, I meet other writers. And so my my global footprint of, you know, writing community has just grown and grown. So that's really big for me. You know, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to head next. I mean, I would actually like to have simpler days with not as many things in them. And so I don't know, that's the big mandate, I guess, ahead. That's great. Yeah. Thanks, Lynn, for talking to me about your book and your vision. Thank you. Today, I'm excited that I am your friend, (laughs) always to see the next steps you're taking. And I'm having a little cry in my eye now for people who are listening to it, (laughs) because this friendship has been so meaningful in my life. And getting to see Lynn continue to grow and and be strong and change people's lives around her has been oh, fantastic. Well, your crying is making me cry. Okay, um, now we're both no. crying. <laughs> I mean, I, I love you too. And I'm so glad that you agreed to be on this episode and interview me and took the time to read the book and offer feedback. And yeah, you're like a sister, like I said at the beginning. So thank uh-huh. you. All the love. Thanks. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. So I'm just going to say for listeners, if you want to get Woman of Valor, you can order it online anywhere you find your books. And the virtual launch party is September 26th. If you go to lynngaladner.com, you can sign up to be at that party. And we will have a live in-person book launch in Michigan, October 1st. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world. And please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more at makemeaning.org or lynngaladner.com.